With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina knows the value of giving pets the absolute best. That's why they only use trustworthy ingredient sources in their pet foods, and every ingredient in their products has a purpose. Learn more at Purina.com slash cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 4th. Today, five years of economic growth erased. Examining Indian matchmaking and what election polls can tell us. We just learned that we had the biggest economic contraction that we've ever seen in 70 years of economic data. The economy literally wiped away five years of growth. That's painful. I'm Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Washington Post. So, Heather... You are the person that we often turn to when we are trying to figure out what is going on with the economy. So my question to you is, what is going on with the economy? It's at a precipice right now. Think about losing five years of a life. Uh, that's, that's rough. But where we are today is even more scary because we thought we were getting better in June. You know, we were seeing those credit card sales pick up. We were even seeing a little bit more airline traffic and hope people going back to hotels and traveling a bit. Gas usage, people going to the pump, filling up their car was getting close to normal. And then July hit, the virus surged, and everything has stalled or even started to backslide. The scariest economic number, the past two weeks, we've seen new unemployment claims rise. That is not what we expected to be seeing now. And that is why it's so critical, many economists say, for Congress to pass very soon a really, really large relief bill. And this idea that the economy is backsliding, even though we saw some improvements earlier in the summer, you made it clear that what economists believe is that Anything that happens to the economy is ultimately dependent on what is happening with the virus and the pandemic. And even if people are confident, even if there are outside factors that affect the economy, that until the virus is under control, like the economy just isn't going to get that much better. And it seems like that is really coming into the fore right now, where as you're seeing this resurgence in cases around the country, that it's just inevitable that the economy will backslide because of that. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Some other alarming numbers lately are consumer confidence. You know, the U.S. economy depends on people going out and buying things. Obviously, they weren't doing that for many weeks while we were all encouraged to stay home to help slow the spread of the virus. But we started to see that pick up in June, in July. 
uh, it's fallen again. Consumer confidence has tanked by both surveys, the University of Michigan and the conference board. And what's even more alarming, the number that really fell in those surveys is when people are asked to predict their outlook for the next six months. So not only do they think July is bad or August is bad, they are signaling that they think December and January are still going to be in the dumps. So that's what's really changed. I would say what changed between sitting here at the early August versus sitting here in early July is pessimism is back. You mentioned the fact that we're all waiting to see if Congress does anything to try to help improve the economy. And we've reached this point, now it's the beginning of August, that unemployment benefits that the federal government had passed earlier in the year, that they have now expired. And until Congress does something to extend them, they will not exist. How soon do you see that having an effect on the state of the economy? And in what ways will that start to ripple out? It may already be having an effect. We have 30 million Americans who are currently receiving unemployment benefits. The average payment was around $930 in June and July. In August, that payment has now dropped to $330. That's totally different. You're going from being able to pay your rent, being able to pay your COBRA, your health insurance if you lost your job, being able to obviously buy food, to suddenly not having enough money to pay all those basic bills. And we think that's part of the reason that we're starting to see some pullback in in spending, in addition to people just being freaked out about going out anywhere again. And so then what is Congress going to do? And and what do economists think that Congress should be doing right now? The main message from economists is, look, this situation is very precarious. And what we're dealing with now is trying to prevent permanent damage to the economy. We are trying to prevent in the coming months businesses from closing forever. We've already seen about 100,000 small businesses shut forever. We can probably all name some restaurants or some local stores that have gone totally out of business. And you don't want that to explode this fall as a lot of these loans and other supplemental monies go away. The same thing is true for individuals. We know after experiencing the Great Recession that when people are unemployed for six months or longer, that's usually a long-term situation. They start losing their car. They start getting evicted from their home. They have a hard time finding a new job. And again, when's that six-month mark? It's September. So if you're not giving people a lifeline, if you're not helping this economy along, then there is a huge, huge risk that this damage that was supposed to be short-term turns into something that lingers for years and years for the country as a whole and certainly for those small business owners and those families. So in the face of this overwhelming voice from the community of economists saying that there needs to be a huge infusion of cash into the economy right now, why is there debate or resistance among members of Congress and particularly Republicans about just making that happen? It's a lot of money. Uh, the nation's already spent about $3 trillion so far on this fighting this pandemic and fighting the economic consequences. And some people, especially uh, Senator Ted Cruz of, of Texas and Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, uh, about half the Senate Republicans are sort of digging their heels in and saying, should we really be spending more money? Should we really be adding to the national debt? 
The problem is we're facing something unprecedented here. We're facing such a deep hole in the economy, and it is not going well. We are basically facing a worst-case scenario summer. And you know, that's where people just want to shake some of these Senate Republicans and say, look, you know, nobody wants to be spending this amount of money, but we are basically in a war. And in a war, you don't sit there and ask what the cost is to win. You know, you, you win it. And we're trying to win this fight against this coronavirus and win this fight against preventing our, our businesses from closing and preventing our people from being evicted. And we've drawn a lot of comparisons with the 2008 recession and the idea that once things start to fail on the individual level, that that starts to kind of bring down this house of cards and bigger institutions, institutions that we thought were pretty safe from any risk, that those are what we see start to crumble. What are we seeing now in terms of the institutions that could start to be affected when people get evicted, when people default on their credit cards? when people, you know, can't pay their mortgage, what happens then? It's obviously a house of cards. Everybody says, follow the money. And I keep an eye on the banks, the biggest banks in America, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. And what was really telling this in July is those banks came out and said, we're doing okay now, but we're putting away a ton of money because later this year, we anticipate that a lot of companies and a lot of people are not going to be able to pay those credit card bills and those mortgages and those loans. That tells you about all you need to know right there. Even Wall Street is very worried that this house of cards is going to fall later this year. I called 25 economists across the political spectrum and many people who say, look, I'm a data person. I don't like to get political. 20 out of 25 said my main message to Congress is they need to do a bill that's two trillion or larger. You know, you can debate what goes in it, but they need to go big right now because that is the level depth and width of the problem that we're facing right now. You know, it's nice to sit here and debate, should it be, you know, 600 billion? No, that's peanuts right now when we're facing the biggest economic crisis of our lifetimes. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. In India, we don't say arrange marriage. There is marriage and then love marriage. The elevator pitch was a dating show for and about South Asians for whom dating is often directly correlated to marriage. So there's one difference between a regular dating show that we seem to have seen a proliferation of and the dating that happens in Indian matchmaking. Congrats, I'm Seema Mami. Which is somewhat unique to the Indian culture. I'm Seema Taparia. I'm Mumbai's top matchmaker. Right. Yeah, the matchmaker. That's definitely <laughs> the difference. First, there was The Bachelor. Then there was Love is Blind. Now, the latest dating show that everyone is talking about is Indian Matchmaking, a new reality show on Netflix that examines the world of arranged marriages in Indian culture and the role of a matchmaker who travels between Mumbai, Houston, Denver, and Delhi. Post Reports executive producer Madalika Sikka spoke to the creator of the show, Smriti Mundra. So tell us about your matchmaker. 
<laughs> so Sima, Sima Didi, as I call her, Sima Taparia, I've known her for 15 years. She was my matchmaker when I was in my late 20s. And at that time, I had sort of been going through a series of steps similar to what, you know, you see a lot of the participants on Indian matchmaking going through to find myself a life partner. The whole process was really led by my mother. And I had a a Shadi.com profile. Shadi.com is sort of the Indian matrimonial website. There was an ad, you know, in the Times of India matrimonial section on my behalf. And then, of course, I I worked with, I, I say I worked with a number of matchmakers, but really it was my mother who was working with all the matchmakers. But yeah, my, my bio data was floating around to a few matchmakers, including Seema Taparia. But when I met Seema for the first time, it was a, quite a bit into the process before I actually met her face to face, because again, a lot of this is sort of happens through family, et cetera. For a while, I was just sort of told where to show up, you know, to meet, to meet this guy or that guy and sent bio data to approve or reject. But when I met her face to face, I was completely fascinated because she's sort of obviously very blunt and larger than life person. Aparna is a very nice girl, but I feel she's a little stubborn. I'm giving Aparna only one match. The more options I give, she's picky and she would not decide. Aparna is very negative. But also just is, I think as you get to know her a little bit, sort of, she's disarmingly charming, I guess. And she also just kind of opened my eyes to this whole world of matchmaking and arranged marriage. And what I started to notice in spending time with her was that matchmaking is sort of almost a litmus test for where we are as a society in terms of how our values are evolving, how our priorities are evolving. And that's what really struck me. You know, Seema works with communities and families that are on the more traditional conservative side, but she was seeing her business change so dramatically, you know, particularly in the last 10 years, because young people are demanding something different. The clients, they want everything. Someone charming. Equal to my pay or higher. Adjustment is also important. You have to be attracted to the person and the person has to be good. I don't think that it's a lot to ask for. I'm really close to my mom. And I wholeheartedly trust her judgment. If he doesn't finalize, me and my husband are going to finalize the girl for him. That is what I've decided. Matchmaking has become a tough job. But I'm trying my best. Right. I love the description of Seema, the matchmaker, as sort of Tinder premium, Mm -hmm. that uh, she's doing a lot of the swiping for you and narrowing it down to a few. Do you think that arranged marriage is something that people know about Indian culture? They probably don't know that it happens in some other cultures as well. But was that the thing you wanted to address for sort of this part of Indian culture, but address it in a 21st century way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've grown up with constantly people asking me, are you going to have an arranged marriage? Are your parents going to choose who you marry? Will you have a chance to meet the person you marry before you marry them? You know, like all of these very sort of old-fashioned reductive notions of what arranged marriage is, when the reality is in India, for many people, of course, those very conservative ideas still very much exist, but for a lot of people, arranged marriage is the loosest form, you know, of what we think it is. It's really just trying to meet somebody and involving your parents in that process. I wanted to show that. I wanted to show that it is a system of finding partnership that speaks directly to the values of a specific culture. I think the dominant notion, the dominant idea of, of arranged marriage or, or even any anything to do with marriage in, in Indian or South Asian cultures is very oppressive, regressive, where 
the young person, especially the woman, has no agency. And that's not true anymore. That might have been true a generation ago, and that might have worked fine for for people of a generation ago because the expectations around marriage were completely different for many people. But things are changing now. Our expectations are changing, you know, in many cases, and the sort of idea of arranged marriage is evolving. So, Aparna, you're 34? 34. Mm -hmm. So, have you dated before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've tried to use my network before. I've tried to use the dating apps before. It just... um, I haven't had any luck meeting someone that fits. I'm really interested in the fact that you chose to look at matchmaking both in India and in America with first-gen, second-gen millennial Indians who one would have thought might have rejected the idea of using a matchmaker. How did you decide to do that and how come her work has come over here? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's very much the organic nature of her work. Seema has clients all over the world, including a lot in uh, North America. And I think that what that really says and what that really speaks to is sort of this like desire that even those of us in the diaspora have to sort of parse through our traditions and our culture and try to determine what aspects of it we want to hold on to and what aspects of it that don't fit. And a lot of South Asian people and particularly Indian people I've noticed over the years, just from my own friends and my own family, are interested in sort of marrying other South Asians and being with people who have a fundamental understanding of sort of who we are and where we come from. I think there's also a notion of of young millennial Indians in India being extremely bound by the wishes of their parents and without a lot of agency, including amongst Indian Americans and Indians of the diaspora who maybe haven't had an opportunity to go back home for a long time and still sort of have outdated notions of what young Indians are like today. So we wanted to show sort of the range of experiences. Within India, we wanted to show the more traditional side. And then in the United States, we have people of the Indian diaspora who run the gamut, people who are sort of trying to navigate that space between their Indian identity and their sort of Western upbringing. And in a weird way, I almost feel like that's a metaphor for the show. It's like... They're all navigating. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We're all navigating and sometimes code switching and trying to figure out how to bring these two disparate aspects of our identity together. Well, one thing that there was a commonality to was, well, two issues, one of colorism and one of cost. I study my database of all the clients and go for a good fit. They want tall, they want fair, they want from a good family. They want everything. In India, we have to see the cast. We have to see the height. We have to see the age. How about this? She's short. She's very nice, but she's short. This will not match. If the boy six- And this idea that people are looking for somebody who is fair, by which they mean fair-skinned, and also caste. And it's interesting to me that those issues still exist for people who are brought up here, for families who have lived here for decades. And, you know, there's been some criticism that that's something that should have been taken head on. For you as the filmmaker, what was your intention? So the intention for me as a filmmaker and a producer on the series was to show the reality of what this institution is, of how we sort of relate to this institution and not sanitize it or make it appear more progressive than it actually is. Given that we were primarily making this show for an Indian and South Asian 
audience, both in India and in the diaspora, I felt it would have been disingenuous to take some of those comments out. It would have been really easy to edit out the three or four references to fairness or good family, etc. But then anyone who's been through this process or is familiar with this process would know that that was disingenuous. So we made a conscious choice to leave all of that in. And the idea was to leave the debate to the audience, leave the debate to the public forum to talk about why it is that we still value these things. Some of us, not all of us, of course, but some of us still value these things in our culture. Even some of us who are progressive in so many other ways, I think still have internalized a lot of regressive ideas, you know, and I think we have to also remind ourselves to have a little bit of patience for people who are still catching up and maybe haven't had the the sort of the privilege or the space to really grow into their own ideas and challenge some of the things that their families have drilled into them. That does come with a certain amount of privilege. Some people don't really have the space to question and explore in that way. And I wanted to be honest about that and uh, and also just hold a mirror up, honestly, you know, to to sort of where we are as a culture so we can also start to dismantle the things that don't fit anymore or that should be questioned. I think actually you did show it. It was sort of show, not tell in how you address the issue of fairness. There's such a burden on non-white producers and creators of content to answer for all the social ills of their community. Absolutely. And that's a burden not put on white creators. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the criticism, what I'm reading between the lines is that we need more. We need way more content that represents so many different aspects and facets of the South Asian experience and the global experience, you know, of of all different communities and and different cultures. And hopefully we're slowly starting to get there. But I think somebody has to kick the door open. And I hope that this show just kicked the door open so that there can be even more, even more content that speaks to the absolute vast diversity of the South Asian experience. The other common theme that came up, and I was particularly fascinated by this, that all the women featured, whether they were women who grew up in India or women who grew up in America, they were all accomplished. They sort of had their own identity and their own lives. But ultimately, the expectation was that the girl would have to somehow adapt in a relationship. And that was an expectation that was not made of men. And it's interesting to me that that happened both in India and here. It's the reality of our social contract, whether it's in India or in the Indian diaspora, where maybe it's a little bit more heightened, or in non-Indian cultures and Western culture, that that is still very much an expectation for a lot of non-Indian and Western couples. You know, the difference is that for the most part in the West, we don't just say it (laughs) out loud. But I think marriage is an institution that's built on the backs of women. It is absolutely something that has not historically benefited women. It's, it's patriarchal, it's old-fashioned, it's outdated, and it needs to change. But I also understand that there's a very human yearning for companionship, a very human yearning for a life partner. It's such a complicated equation because part of that is all that we've internalized about tying our worth to marriage, our self-worth to marriage, and also just sort of a very fundamental human need for everybody. I think it's interesting you say that in talking about some of these issues, we just say it out loud, but that everyone's sort of looking for the same things. Because I think from outside cultures, it may just look so transactional that the bio data that they share is pretty much a resume. But it's almost like saying the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. 
that everyone is sort of looking for similar things. And if you put them on the spot, the way people are put on the spot in order to put together a biodata. Yeah. Whether we're progressive Indians who completely reject the institution of, of matchmaking or arranged marriage, or, you know, you're a non-Indian person on a dating app, we self filter, we self-stratify. That is just implicit in the process. It has in Indian and South Asian culture and communities, like it is named, it is very explicit. And like you said, it can feel very transactional. But I think we should also think about the ways we do those very same things. And how open-minded are we really for those of us who don't have to exist in that in that world? Smriti Mundra is the creator of Indian Matchmaking, currently streaming on Netflix. And now, one more thing. A new numbers releasing right now make clear President Trump is in deep trouble. You've probably heard that President Trump is not doing too well in the polls right now. Arizona, Florida, Michigan, you remember, key to the Trump 2016 win. But our brand new CNN polling shows the president trailing in all three. Let's take a look at the numbers. But flashback to 2016. There were all these questions around polling and whether or not the numbers were actually reliable. So can we trust what these polls seem to be saying? Joe Biden up four points in North Carolina, 48 percent. The Post's politics podcast, Can He Do That?, was also wondering about these poll numbers. So they turned to our newsroom's resident polling experts. My name's Emily Guskin. I'm a polling analyst at The Washington Post. I'm Scott Clement, and I'm the polling director at The Washington Post. And Allison Michaels is the host of Can He Do That? How much faith should we put in polls that try to predict the outcome of presidential elections? What lessons have we learned from 2016 specifically and and what's been corrected? Readers should not take polls as a direct prediction of an election outcome, especially further away. But even close to then, there are reasons why pre-election polls may not match up with how people vote. Some of those are reasons of polling accuracy and whether they're getting election samples accurately or samples of voters accurately. Um, But the other is just inherent unpredictability in what voters are going to do. The population of likely voters in any given election doesn't ever exist at one point in time. Uh, It used to exist all on election day. Now it exists partly on election day when people go to vote and partly when they choose to mail in a ballot. And pollsters are chasing that moving target, trying to reach this representative sample of voters, but it's always chasing an ideal that's sort of unattainable. So it's really important to take polls as a pretty good estimate and not expect much more out of them. And people change their mind. I think a lot of people who are paying a lot of attention to the news are pretty locked in. And most Americans who vote are pretty locked in with their choices, but not everyone is. And they change their mind. And in 2016, lots of people made decisions on who they were going to vote for in the last two weeks before the election. And also about 2016, the polls were not far off. The average national polls were about as close as they've ever been to a presidential election. And the pre-election polls right before 2016, the average of national telephone polls were really quite close to what the popular vote turnout was. We did notice that some polls in states in the Midwest were more off than others. Historically, state-level polls 
have been consistently less accurate than national polls. 2016 was a poor year for state polls. Uh, and while we understand some of the reasons for that, some of those are just inherent in state polling. And in close elections at the presidential level, it's really the battleground states that matter the most. And so we have less precise tools in places that matter the most, which means that things are just generally less certain. Wait, let's repeat again, just to, to, to send it home. Polls are not predictors. And if polls are not predictors, then what's the value in capturing just a moment in time if it's not representative of a longer term sentiment or the bigger picture in some way? The horse race isn't the only thing that matters. There's issues out there that we want to measure opinions on important policies to see how those have evolved over time as well are really important. I always find it kind of endearing when people respond to me, well, duh, when we release a finding that they think is obvious. But we wouldn't know it was obvious if we didn't have public opinion polling. So knowing what people are thinking about important issues is really vital. And it can be vital for extremely important things, policy definitely, but public health. Right now we're in a public health crisis. And if we have data on whether or not people are wearing masks when they leave the house, that's an important thing to understand. What people are doing, how they're reacting to things that are happening in the news that affect their health, their livelihood, the economy, all sorts of really important vital issues. Emily Guskin is a polling analyst for The Post. Scott Clement is our polling director. Allison Michaels is the host of Can He Do That? You can find a link to the full episode of this podcast at postreports.com. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. We always want to talk more with our listeners, and a great way that we found to do that is through our Facebook group. There are discussions about recent episodes of the podcast, interesting articles our listeners have been reading, and just general conversation about the news and life in the time of COVID. It's like a little community. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash post reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NIA, or Stride Bank NIA, members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.